2: Good morning, it's 8.30 on Friday, September 29th. I'm Michael Gidry in for Desiree Frazier, and this is Morning Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a federal shutdown could disrupt the dozens of community health centers throughout Mississippi. Then we continue our conversation with a university professor who says there's more to a college education than what a recent auditor's report claims. Plus, September is Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Congress has been unable to agree on a budget, and with tomorrow's deadline looming, it's possible that could disrupt services provided by community health centers throughout Mississippi. Federally qualified health centers operate in some of the most medically underserved parts of the state, with most of their funding supplied by the Federal Health Resources and Services Administration. Now, some in the field worry what a prolonged shutdown could mean for the larger communities they serve. Our Mike McEwen speaks with Dr. Lionel Frazier, the medical director of Central Mississippi Health Centers. They, they talk about what this could mean for his patients and the community.
1: We are one of many throughout the country, community health centers that are funded through HERSA. And our mission is to bring care to those who are most adversely affected by the social determinants of health, housing, transportation, economic insecurities. This is a, a, a group that is in need of lots of help in many ways, and uh, in many ways and our mission is medical to see to their health care. We have a certain basis of funding through HERSA that allows us to uh, fulfill this mission, but we are not free clinics. Uh, it's imperative for us to find additional sources of revenue. And most of that comes through those patients we see who may have uh, some form of uh, insurance coverage. But because we are obliged to see anyone who walks through that door, we still have a burden of, of giving care to those without uh, insurance and reimbursement. And that's where the grant from HERSA comes in. Throughout the country, uh, I believe in 2022, there were almost 15% individuals served through this system of uh, community health centers with uh, who were, quote, self pay or uninsured. In our clinic, uh, that percentage was in 2022 about almost 40%. So you can see right away there's uh, stress put on our system.
3: Should the federal shutdown happen, that some of the grant funding and other federal funding you all receive would be cut off or it would be limited in some way?
1: Would be uh, delayed, for sure, in terms of those payments that we get as a drawdown on our uh, overall grant. And so that means that we have to rely upon those reserves we have in place to continue operating at, at the same level. And if, if they are stressed, if those reserves are inadequate, then we have to uh, begin to look at how we curtail our services, how we uh, uh, limit the patients we see, how we, uh, whether or not we have to furlough or lay off employees, uh, whether or not we have to shut down clinics. In any case, it's a negative impact upon the care that we're able to render to those who are in many cases, most in need of it.
3: And I believe you said that some of those reserves are already under strain. Is that due to rising costs over the past couple of years and inflation and other economic markers?
1: Obviously, we were impacted by all of those trends that it would impact the country. And by and large, the, the whole country, the increasing costs for supplies, medicines, uh, implements and instruments that we have to purchase. Uh, utilities, even all of those things tend to create stress on our budget and, and how we allocate uh, our uh, funds. Salaries are a large part of it too, and a lot of that is used to support a lot of our grant from HRSA uh, and the support that we expect and rely upon. Uh, is a lot of that funding is used to support the salaries of those individuals who work within the clinic and render care. And so all of this certainly impacts our ability to plan in the short term and near term and to manage clinic operations.
3: And what kind of impact could that have on the surrounding community that your clinic serves?
1: Well, you know, it's clear that in many cases in in many communities, these clinics are also economic drivers so that our employees are members of the community And their families are affected by the economic perturbations that we experience in the clinic in terms of the salaries we're able to pay, in terms of uh, the impending layoffs we might face in the coming uh, month. And so uh, all of these things uh, create stresses within our community and and locally, around the corner, so to speak, the stores that that, uh, employees might uh, frequent and support city, by and large, uh, that the uh, incomes of uh, employees uh, uh, use um, businesses and services within the city. All of that's connected. So we're not working in an isolated, we're not working in a vacuum here.
3: Do you think that in the grand scheme of things, these, these smaller impacts when discussing things like the national budget, do you think the issues that this presents are known to the legislators when they're they're having these disagreements and these conflicts on Capitol Hill.
1: You know, I don't know if these at the individual level, at the people level, uh, at the level of families and, and and children who are in need of these services. I don't know if these things are foremost in the mind of of the uh, politicians who have to determine our budget and determine funding in this case for HERSA. But uh, I think it it would be helpful for we to push these things in, into their consciousness and, and, and to let them see how
3: individual citizens
1: are affected by the, the machinations that go on in, at, at the congressional level.
3: And if we could go back a second to maybe some of the operational decisions that your clinic would have to make, you mentioned things with staffing and with employees. Would there also have to be, maybe a cutback in some medical services that are provided?
1: We're basically a primary care clinic, so we do medical exams, treat ambulatory illnesses, triage people who might have more serious illnesses. So that all of these things are affected by the employees who are able to help us serve and fulfill that mission. And as I indicated before, it comes down to whether or not we're able to employ individuals, continue their employment, whether or not they have to be furloughed, whether or not we have to close uh, some of our clinics at the end of the day. So all of these things have a direct impact upon the health and the well-being of the citizens that we are here to serve.
2: Dr. Lionel Frazier is the medical director of Central Mississippi Health Centers. Currently, community health centers operate 247 clinics throughout 70 of Mississippi's 82 counties. Coming up, we continue our conversation with a university professor who says there's more to a college education than what a recent auditor's report claims. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio
1: no matter if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone everyday tech can decipher today's technology for tomorrow's solutions subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the mpb public media app
2: this is mississippi edition on mpb think radio i'm michael Gidry. Educators and advocates in higher learning throughout Mississippi have spoken out online against... The state auditor's recent social media posts about how the state funds various college degrees. State auditor Shad White recently released a report that tracked the earnings and in state retention of several college degrees, ranging from engineering to sociology. He argues degrees that directly lead to higher paying jobs, like engineering, should have better funding in public colleges and universities throughout the state. White also claims degrees such as sociology are unlikely to pay above the average salary in Mississippi, and questions why those degrees should receive taxpayer dollars. Kate Sinteas is the Croft Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Mississippi. In part two of our conversation, she says degrees in the humanities and social sciences often open doors towards career paths that serve the greater community.
0: A lot of the professions that the auditor mentioned do often require a master's degree or advanced degree, engineering, health professions, etc. But one of the things that's really fascinating, and this is where perhaps the auditor is a little bit um, behind the times or behind the trends, is that increasingly medical school applicants who major in the biological sciences or other sciences, um, but certainly the biological sciences, on aggregate have a 41% um, admissions rate to medical schools, whereas humanities majors and social science majors have higher admissions rates, because now the MCAT and other um, pre-health professions exams require core competencies in things like sociology, anthropology, and, and other stuff, because increasingly, we found that health professionals are less effective if they don't have some social science training, some... Um, training in thinking creatively and reflexively and, un- and understanding how to communicate cross culturally. Similarly, some of the larger employers of anthropologists are not academics or at, you know, universities. Often anthropologists are hired by Google, by Facebook, by big tech companies to understand how consumers, how users use the products and what they think of them. So much so that anthropologists are significantly in demand. And in fact, I went to graduate school with someone who is now one of the chief user experience officers at Facebook. So if the image is that of a lone researcher, kind of a dilettante um, in an isolated community studying things that have no relevance to migration or globalization or social change or um, healthcare or anything like that, that is a, that is an old fashioned view. And that has not been the case in terms of what anthropology does for decades.
2: Well, I Thank you for, for all of that. In fact, but I was going to say, you know, you've been at the university of Mississippi for 14 years. You've, 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 you've seen plenty of students come either uh, come through your classroom, come through the cross Institute. I imagine the pathway out of your class is not a narrow one. Um, that that it could be a very broad one. And so what are some of those, you know, the the myriad of paths that a student can take coming out of your class or coming out of any type of, like, uh, anthropological or sociological course of study?
0: We do, of course, have some students who major in anthropology or sociology and go on to get degrees in that or get jobs in their field. But the majority of students in these classes are in other majors, So I have had students go on to join the Foreign Service. I have had students go on to careers in education. I have multiple students who have gone on to medical school or nursing school or gone to school for counseling or social work, physical therapy, Um, many pre-law students, who uh, some of whom are still practicing in Mississippi and also a significant number of students who are interested in entering politics or entering um, the world of public policy, um, international relations, diplomacy. So it's a pretty broad um, group that have um, graduated and and gone on to excellent careers in in different fields. You know, I'm, I'm really proud of them, and quite a few of them express, if they're from Mississippi in particular, express their desire to stay if they can. But sometimes they find it challenging to do so. For instance, I have a student right now, I'm, I'm his thesis advisor, and he's an extremely talented uh, student from Mississippi, and he will be attending medical school, uh, and he would ideally like to come back and work in-state. But a lot of it will depend on what opportunities are here so that's just that's just one example of of a student who I've taught some of the best and brightest not only in Mississippi but I would say that could compete anywhere in the country who are really talented and smart and caring and compassionate um, and want to improve where they live um but are find it increasingly difficult to see themselves in this state, and I hope that that can change
2: and then my 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 final question and this is kind of based on um yeah, yeah prior knowledge you know just you know, just foundational understanding of of post secondary education of higher education but also based on some of the, the things you've shared in this conversation uh and, and that is you you you've mentioned a lot about like you know interdisciplinary studies you have a lot of people come through your classroom and take your courses that aren't necessarily anthropology majors and this this focus of from the state auditor in this report is you know major programs as someone who's been at the university for a, a substantial period of time and, and understands and sees that kind of interdisciplinary crossover every day, every year, what problems would it present to take funding, taxpayer funding, away from certain major programs when it's not necessarily majors that are taking your courses, but people seeking, you know, an interdisciplinary, comprehensive, higher education experience? as they pursue what's going to be the next step
0: well it actually would do the opposite of what the auditor claims to be doing in that it would make our students less prepared and less competitive heading to the future like right now we don't know what high-paying jobs are going to be in 10 20 30 years but having the kind of critical thinking ability the ability to think creatively about problems the ability to work with others will position our students to be flexible in the future, to be able to um, innovate and to um, pioneer perhaps new fields or new new um, new positions, new new industries. Uh, so, if the funding was taken away from these these majors, which are increasingly in demand by employers, by graduate schools, by professional schools, that just could serve to set us further behind and do a disservice to the taxpayers of Mississippi. Um, first of all, and second of all, um, it also if you know many many students who who attend here, if they're from Mississippi, they themselves are taxpayers, and they are choosing what fields make the most sense to them. Um, taking away that funding takes away their choice and their parents' choice and the taxpayers' choice about. Um, what is deserving of study regardless of the economic uh, potential payoff or the economic uh, impact of certain majors.
2: Kate Sinteas is the Croft Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Mississippi. Coming up, September is Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
0: This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting.
2: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Michael Gidry. Mississippi has one of the highest suicide rates in the nation, and mental health advocates say it's always a good time to ask for help. The most recent data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention shows that in 2021, suicide rates reached a 20-year high in the state. Our Desiree Frazier speaks with Misha MK, founder of the Suicide Watch and Wellness Foundation, about what may be contributing to the state's high suicide rates and how folks can find help.
4: Suicide doesn't, it doesn't matter how much money you have, where you come from, your age, your gender. It has gobbled up some of our best and brightest. I mean, we've got anywhere from Robin Williams to Kate Spade to even young kids, you know, children as young as six years old. So we're the kind of people, Ron and I, that are, are advocates for, for the, the I would say, the downtrodden and those part, uh, folks in our community that people have kind of... Sh- don't even pay attention to, shoved aside, who do I mean? Our senior citizens, our veterans, our children, our people with disabilities, and, of course, the furry friends. And so um, in our research, we found out that this is a serious thing. We're one of those folks that if we hear something, we say something. If we know something, we do something. So we had to do something. And in that doing, in that research, we found out, you know, what I had mentioned. And then we found out, well, let me see, where 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 is all this? Well, when you look at the suicide map across the United States, It's all over. We don't know anyone right now in those states, but we have a really good friend in Mississippi. And so what we did is we called her and we said, we need to come down there and find out what's happening with suicide in Mississippi. Suicide in Mississippi is in the top 3% when compared to the whole United States of America. And we found out that it's a lot of the rural states. And even in in Mississippi, Pishomingo County has the largest level of uh, suicide in Mississippi. Right, so the top five, we got Tishamingo, we got Hancock, Harrison, Franklin County, Alcorn and Hines County now. And then when we talk about age groups in Mississippi, twenty five to thirty four is lo- is larger than twenty five to thirty four age group when compared to the whole United States of America. So Mississippi is pretty it's pretty bad. I mean, um the males that have died by suicide in Mississippi, they outnumber the United States in comparison, like twenty five Point 6. six males have taken their own lives from Mississippi as compared to 23.4 when compared to the whole United States. This is Suicide Prevention Month. So yes. it's such a, a overwhelming topic and one that really isn't pleasant to talk about, but one that needs to be discussed. What's missing in your estimation or not talked about in discussing suicide? well one of the, the reasons why it's it's not talked about why it's such a taboo topic is because there's a stigma associated with it okay the stigma of shame the stigma of guilt the stigma of regret the stigma of of of, of being told that, that you're crazy or being looked upon as you know that person who you know doesn't have all all their faculties and so even when people don't feel good whether they're depressed or or have stress-related issues or anxiety, they they fear to tell someone how they feel because of the way that they will be looked upon, and so they don't say anything. And that's the that's what we call suffering in silence. And then they become introverted, and they become they isolate themselves, and then they they don't want to be a burden. For instance, that's another you know there's several reasons why. Folks, you know, take take their own minds and think that that's an out, why they get pushed over the edge. What do you do to help folks? We have after school programs for ages K through 12, because a lot of times if you don't know how to read or write, you know, their their self-esteem level is low. We also have a wonderful program, and what it is, it's a mental health awareness field trip workshop. And, again, K through 12. And so the, the students come on their buses to our building. They have lunch. And we talk. And we just talk about whatever they feel like talking about. And bullying right now is a big topic. It's huge. Not only is it in the workplace, but in the schools and on social media. It's terrible. And it has caused folks as young as six years old to take their own lives. So can we really help someone who is contemplating suicide because of the nature of how society is, all of the outlets for communicating social media, streaming and all of that? Well, I look at we look at it like this. At Suicide Watch and Wellness Foundation, we try to remind people of what signs to look for, what to watch for. And so a friend in a toxic relationship, check on them. You know your friends. You know if they're, if they're in a relationship that's toxic, whether it be spouse or, or whether it be, you know, um, siblings or parents. You know, ask, ask. are you okay? What's going on? Talk to me because a lot of times we can help and intervene. Intervention is the thing, right? Um, let's say you have a really good friend who you know very well who starts giving away some of their favorite things. That's another sign to watch for. That's not, it's time to say, why are you doing this? Are you okay? And really get, pull it out of them. You know, that's, that's our job as friends and, you know, and family members. You know, we are our brothers and sisters keepers. Um, someone talking about dying. Oh, I wish I, I just feel like dying or I don't want to live anymore. Let's delve into that. Don't just let them say that and leave them. Let's ask them why do they feel that way. Maybe there's some suggestions or a hug or just, you know, um, some sound advice. All right? Not showing up for work. That's another sign to look for, hey, so-and-so hasn't been to work in a week. Did anybody call? Does anybody care? Or, Or are we just waiting for them to come back with a doctor's note? Survivor's guilt, that's another big one, especially with a lot of these school shootings. Some of those students who survived will have taken their own lives because they feel guilty. Why did my friend die and I didn't?
2: Misha McKay is co-founder of the Suicide Watch and Wellness Foundation. If you or a loved one face, is facing mental health crisis, dial 988 for the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.